So take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 4. I'm so glad that you're so much closer to me this morning. It feels so good to, to have your presence here instead of back there. So hopefully this arrangement didn't throw you off too much. I know I came in and I was like, oh goodness, hey, they're going to be so close to me. So there's a little buffer. Now there's not. It's good. We live together in community and I'm just going to stand right up here. And No, I won't do that. I'll stand right here. I'll stay right here this morning. Because Mark will probably trip me if I walk over there. No, you won't? Okay, good. Thank you. So, James chapter 4, this is where we've been. We've been in the book of James now for several several weeks in 2017, and we're thinking about some of the things that James has laid out for us uh, throughout the course of the last few weeks. And really, James kind of has these three things that he wants to communicate to his readers, to his first century readers, um, as, they, as they look at it, as they're enduring persecution, as they're enduring trials, as they're enduring suffering, as they're considering what it means to be a church. Again, these churches would have met in homes. They would have been, they would have been small, groups of, small groups of people who would have met at homes and probably eaten a meal together and spent time together digesting what James wrote to them. Um, and they probably would have read this letter multiple times in that setting and, and considered exactly what the Holy Spirit had through, uh, that the Holy Spirit was speaking to them through their, to their friend James. And so we've really seen three things, and we've unpacked three things over the course of several weeks now. Um, and one thing that James wants his readers to hear is this, that let's face trials as those who understand that we have been put in this position for a purpose, and that the things that are happening here and now are not our focus, but what's eternal is our focus. And, and what is to come is our focus. So now when we endure things, we're going to look through, through those things, and see eternity that is secured for us in Jesus. And then secondly, what Blaze preached on last week, and what we've been thinking about throughout the course of the book, is having a view of trials uh, that is eternally focused is godly wisdom. What, what focus, what the, the focus that is in the here and now is, is worldly wisdom. And so setting those two in contrast is something that James does consistently throughout the course of this book. And then, and then finally... James wants to reiterate this point that the poor and the downcast are the ones that the kingdom is for, the one that the kingdom favors. The kingdom is for those who are poor and downcast and disenfranchised because the comforts of this world that, that this world offers just simply don't cloud their vision of eternity. And so this morning then as we get to James chapter 4, let's read this together. We're just going to read the first 12 verses and we're going to think through them. Um, this morning, because I didn't preach last week, I have doubled the notes this day. No, just kidding, I don't. Here we go. James chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask. You do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend on your, your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of those, or, 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 uh, or I'm sorry, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the, of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is, it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. 
He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. One who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and, and one judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So a couple of things this morning that as we look at this text, a couple of things that become readily apparent to us as we, as we read through this. And one that James really wants to deal with is, is one, internal strife within the local church. Internal strife within the local church. What does that look like and what is the, then the antidote for it? And uh, newsflash, it's humility. Right? That's the second thing that James wants to cover in this text is humility. Um, and what it looks like to deal with the internal strife that comes about. So as we look then at, at chapter 4, verse 1, we see a question posed to us. And really it's almost, it's very similar to the question that we saw at the beginning of our text last week. If we look at verse 13 in chapter 3, if you just look up the page, just a few verses. Who is wise and understanding among you? Um, and then if we bounce down to the beginning of our text this morning, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? The discussion last week that came out of verse 13 and in the passage that follows is uh, that the corporate application of wisdom is something that we should, be, uh, we should be evaluating. Is it worldly or is it godly? What does it look like for us together as a body to be applying and understanding wisdom um, in the two categories, godly or worldly? And then the question that kicks off our text this morning, what causes quarrels and fights among you? James is using similar language here to, in, to indicate this continued thought, right? A continued thought, one that is not firmly fixed, but, but one that, or one that is not com completely separate, but one that is ongoing here. Two things that the first question asks is, what does it mean to be wise and understanding? The second question is, what causes these quarrels and fights? And then if you look down uh, to verse 5, the first five verses in our text, they serve to really demonstrate the lack of understanding, what it means to be wise and understanding, back in verse 13 of chapter 3. James says, who is wise and understanding among you? He says, well, it's not you guys who are living like what I'm going to describe in verses 1 through 5 in chapter 4. If you bounce back up to 17 and 18 in, in chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, that the wisdom from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. These are the, the fruit of a life that is subscribing to godly wisdom. And then in verse 18, this harvest of righteousness comes because the wise so peace, right? And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So peacemakers then, we could say peacemakers are those who plant peace in the soil of peace and harvest righteousness. Peacemakers plant peace in the soil of peace and, and harvest righteousness. So then, 
What causes quarrels? That's the lead-in to our text this morning. What causes quarrels and fights among you in verse 1 of chapter 4? And so, as we look at this, I really want you guys to see this this morning. James answers the first question, really, with the second question, right? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you? What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? <laughs> yeah, James, it is. Thanks. Now, what is James communicating here, especially in verse 1 to us? I think it's striking how oftentimes in the church, when we look at a text like this, the first thing we go to is an individual application, right? The first thing that we go to is an individual application. There's something you have to realize, especially in our text this morning, as you look through the first 12 verses in chapter 4, anytime you see the word you, it is always plural. It is always plural. It's never singular. It's never singular. I think there's an element of individualism, or an individual element here, but that's very secondary. James wants his readers to see that the passions are causing these quarrels and fightings within them, which means that they're actually carrying out fighting and quarreling within the church. There's actually fighting and quarreling going on within the church. In verse 2, if you, if you, you do not have, so you murder. You desire, you do not have, so you murder. You covet, you cannot attain, so you obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. This is not just some angst that people are feeling, but the expression of passions being carried out in the body of Christ. This is actually being played out, being carried out, brother against brother, to, in, to those who are in, within those who James is writing to you. So when we look at this, this verse in particular, it's not your passions at war within you. Your, your Bible might say desires, it might say pleasure, something like that. Um, in the original language, that, that word in and of itself is, 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 is something very similar to our word for hedonism. If you're familiar with that word, it's hedonism, just sort of this pursuit of pleasure or self-indulgence. This pursuit of pleasure or self-indulgence is really what's contained within that, that term. Sometimes, uh, sometimes it, what, what's being communicated here is, is a little bit veiled because sometimes I think the word passion, in our, it can be used negatively, but it also can be really used positively in our, in our language, right? It's like, say, um, what are you passionate about? And we get excited about something, right? And that's okay, but, but what's being called for here is something very different. The pursuit of pleasure or self-indulgence that is elevated above the body. This is a dramatic warning for any church, not the one that James is just writing to. Um, and so I guess the question coming out of it for us then is, what does that look like for us? What does it look like for for Buffalo City Church, what does it look like for the local church in Jamestown in 2017? And I think it really is just laid out here in the text, right? You desire, you covet, you ask, or you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend on your desires, on your passions, on your pleasures. And I think it's easy for us then to look at this text when we start to look at it through the lens of, yeah, he's speaking to a group of people to say, well, well we're not doing that. We're not murdering anyone in here. 
We're not fighting and quarreling, and there's no, like, no one's going to go back there and punch each other over the last donut hole. I mean, maybe, I guess. Those <laughs> things are pretty good. And sure, that's fine. I guess, I guess we're, 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 not, we're not doing those things. Like, the expression of our frustrations is not, is not played out. But I think overall, we just do a poor job as people in general. Just, uh, uh, how do I want to say this? Just um, hiding our frustrations. There are people who are entrenched in a society that's based on it. Here's sort of the crux of this argument. There's, for James, at least, there's there are people who are based or entrenched in a society that, is, uh, that is, is rooted in comparison. That is rooted in comparison with, with others. And a good portion of us this morning, even when we drive away from this place, are going to, to, to go out from here, we're going to think in our minds, or we're going to vocalize it to our spouse or to whoever's in the car with us. We're probably going to make some kind of comparison, even though I'm saying this right now. It's probably going to happen, right? We're going to we're going to talk about what somebody was wearing, or we're going to talk about um, what they're driving away in, or maybe how their kids behaved. And entertaining those comparisons is met with a clear call from James, and uh, especially here in in uh, in uh, verse four. Do you not know that friendship with the world is Amity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes him himself an enemy of God. So as we look at this text then, as we've seen the first three or four or five verses here, uh, the question that comes out of it is, are we sowing peace and harvesting righteousness? Now what does that mean? We'll talk about that in a second. Are we sowing peace and harvesting righteousness, or are we sowing comparison? Are we sowing coveting? Are we sowing self-pursuits? Are we sowing personal passions or pleasures, which harvest, ultimately, what James says, dissension, which harvests infighting, which harvests quarreling. And here, here's what sort of James presupposes in this discussion. Here's, the, here's what James is assuming that his readers understand coming into this, because he's writing to the local church. He says... He's assuming this, that the gospel is often far from our hearts and far from our minds. And maybe we say it this way, the gospel is far from our hearts and minds far too often. Jesus says in, in chapter 5 of, verse, or of, of Matthew, um, sounds like a party in there. <laughs> Jesus says... Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. He says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And so what, what James says in, verses, in verse 18 of chapter 3 is so important for us. And the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace to those who make peace. To the peacemakers, a harvest of righteousness is, sown, or, or, or is, is given. Paul writes in Romans 5, 1, and this is so integral to our understanding here. Therefore, since we have been justified with, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peacemakers are the ones who understand that peace has been made with God on our behalf. That is number one thing that you have to understand to be a peacemaker, to sow peace in the soil of peace, and to harvest righteousness is that peace with God has been made on our behalf. So what this doesn't look like 
is breaking up parking lot fights. What this does look like is a full-on recognition that peace with God, uh, despite the fact that we were God's enemies, we have been called now His friends through the work of Jesus Christ. We can now make peace because Christ made peace. And the question, how is peace made? Simply by this. It's, it's, so, it's so simple again, but it's so not easy. Peace is made by proclaiming the truth of the gospel and by letting it be the truth by which you live. That's that simple. Peace is made by, by, uh, by proclaiming the truth of the gospel and letting it be the truth by which you live. But if we continue to subscribe to the world's ways, right? If we continue to describe, subscribe to what Paul or what uh, James is saying here, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. If we continue to subscribe to the world's ways and the world's wisdom, we will not harvest righteousness out of the soil of peace. We will harvest this fighting, this quarreling out of the soil of self-pursuits. So get that and think with me and don't, don't move on from this idea right here. Let the Spirit of Christ work in your heart. What is the soil? Think about your week. Really, honestly, think about your week. What, is your, what does your week look like? How much was dedicated to self-interest this week? How much was dedicated to self-interest? And don't be deceived. You might be doing something for your wife or for your husband or for your kids or your friend, but where is your heart at in it? Where is your heart at in it? This is exactly what James is writing about. The orientation of your heart, the way that it's pointed, is the soil. If that soil is personal passions, pleasures, desires, whatever that is, it will lead to comparisons, it will lead to frustrations, it will lead to result in dissensions in the church, within your family. If the soil is peace and the recognition that peace with God is something that you received as an unmerited gift, completely undeserved, unearned by you, resulted peacemaking. Very simply stated this. Focus on self yields a harvest of infighting. Focus on the gospel yields a harvest of righteousness. Focus on self yields a harvest of infighting. Focus on the gospel yields a harvest of righteousness. And the peace of God that he proclaims to us is this. We are all enemies of God. Prior to knowing, prior to Christ, we were all enemies of God. Because of our sin, because of our rebellion. And the truth of the matter is that God had declared all out war on us. All out war. He was loading the cannons of his wrath, he was pulling back the bow, said to eternally annihilate us, turn the wrath on Max and let it flow. Sort of rhymed. With the cannons loaded in the bow drawn, he drew a deep breath. And there's just quiet silence. And we hear a cry in a manger 2,000 years ago. Impoverished, humble. 30 years, this 
individual walked on the earth, a simple carpenter doing, that every, doing everything that everyone who came before him was incapable of doing. And he took three years to journey, which ended at the cross, with God redirecting all of that wrath and positioning it on him, and unleashing an eternity's worth of, of wrath against his own son. And burst forth it crushed his son, it destroyed him, nothing was held back, God did not stay his hand, and annihilation was poured out in full force. God's wrath was satisfied in that moment, and peace with God was made. And guys, without this understanding, we don't get the gospel. That's not good news, it's just news. It's just a guy who came and died 2,000 years ago. If we don't fully understand that the wrath of God was poured out, the wrath that we deserved was poured out of Jesus Christ on the cross. The news of Jesus Christ is just news. It's not good. It's just news. This is the peace, then, that James is writing about. The wrath that was positioned to us now was redirected to Jesus Christ and peace has been made. So here's the question. Do you think that you deserved the Son of God, perfect, sinless, the God-man to step in and to absorb eternity's worth of wrath on your behalf? This is an, this is an open book example. We have it right here. Um, let me give you the, the, the answer to that question. No, we did not. No, we did not deserve that. Um... And yet we do what James is writing exactly not to do to the church here, to churches here that he's writing to. We let our self-pursuits, our self-centeredness, our self-indulgence dictate our interactions with others in here and outside. We desire earthly things that we don't have. We covet the earthly things we don't have. We ask for things to spend on our own pleasures. This is not the harvest of righteousness that James is talking about. Before we move on, just like, think about verse 5 with me. Because this is really the transition that happens. God created us to be worshipers, right? He yearns jealously over the spirit that he made to dwell in us. What does that mean? Why does James put that here? He yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us. It means God desires for us to worship Him, to find all that we are in who He is. We gather together to worship on Sunday, but the question is, now what do we do here, but what do we do out? What do we do in the rest of the week? The hours of our week that, that are not so... Not so satisfactory in our eyes. What do we do with those? If we were to understand those, if we were to passionately pursue God through His Word in the same way that we're pursuing earthly things, I think the rest of our week would look very different. We wouldn't spend as much we would spend as much time as we could in God's Word, both alone and with others. We would spend the rest of our week attempting to build our build each other up instead of building ourselves up. That kind of 
takes us then to this last point. When James writes, do you, do you suppose that there's no purpose that, that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit he's made to dwell in us? Of course there's a purpose. And then the hope, and here's the turn right in this text. In verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore it says, if God, opposed, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The dissent that's stirred up in the churches that James is writing to, this dissent that is stirred up among them, is, written, is, is happening because of this entitlement, because of the lack of understanding of what they've received in Jesus Christ. If you think that you deserve what you've received in Christ, if you think that you are great, and that's why God sent His Son to die on your behalf, if you think that you are, uh, it's your birthright and not a lovely gift given to the unlovely, then expect quarreling and infighting in the local church. James pleads with his readers not to have that mind in them, but to humble themselves. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Paul writes something very similar to the church in Philippi. This is chapter 2, verses 3 through 11 in the epistle to the Philippians. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours. It belongs to you in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this isn't tough, end quote. This isn't tough for us to get our minds around. It's not. The answer to how to move past quarreling, fighting, covetousness, etc., is to live a life of humility. How? James writes here, submit yourselves to God. He says, draw near to God. He says, weep over your sinfulness. Why would he write here? Why would he write, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom? Boy, that sounds like a downer message. This isn't positive and encouraging, James. He's writing this because people have not grappled with the weight of their own sin. He's writing this because... They, they're laughing and saying, wow, okay, I guess we're sinful, and ha-ha, and then let's move forward. He's writing this because they need to take a serious look and examine themselves and see if they're living according to godly wisdom or worldly wisdom. Each one of these things here, submit yourself to God. Submission to God looks like obedience, understanding what God requires of us and then operating out of that. Drawing near to God looks like pursuing Him and not worldly things. Acknowledging sinfulness looks like active, ongoing repentance. Acknowledging your sin, turning from it, walking the other direction. Understanding that you've acted disobediently, that you haven't fully submitted yourself to God, and that you're turning from that error and walking away in the Spirit of Christ. 
And James kind of wraps up by giving an example of someone who is not humble before the Lord. I think verses 11 and 12 in particular are speaking directly about an example about, uh, of, of someone who is not humble before the Lord. We look at verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against his brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law and you're not a doer of the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. Simply this. You're coming out of this. There's a lot of words, law, judge, not quite sure. If you're doing this, if you're speaking evil against one another, then essentially you have elevated yourself to the point that only God holds. You've made yourself the judge. There's only one judge that judges God. We are doers of the law, not judges of it. We are those who are held to the law standard. But if you speak to evil, you say, that one is a doer of the law. But I'm the one who judges if he or she did it correctly. And then verse 12. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He is he who is able to save and destroy but who are you to judge your neighbor? Speaking evil as an active opposition to what it is, means to be humble before God. And this is why James writes this here in verses 11 and 12. Active opposition, the one who speaks evil against his brother, actively opposed to what it means to be humble before God. So just a couple of thoughts then for us as we move on through this text and then out of it. Uh, just in conclusion, then, first of all, I'm going to give you three statements, each of these starting with the gospel, that presupposition that James has going into this text. The first is this, that the gospel grants us peace. That the gospel grants us peace. Um, in our culture, people tend to internalize and then to act, I think, more than just act. Um, and oftentimes that action comes out in a sort of this passive-aggressive way. I think that's kind of the culture that we reside in. We, we tend to be passive-aggressive um, when something doesn't quite go our way or the way that we, we, if we, if there's something that we don't particularly like, the way that our husband does the, does the dishes or the way that our wife cleans the house or however that is, we typically respond in a passive-aggressive way. Um, and within the context of the local church, then we're prone to maybe talk behind someone's back instead of, uh, instead of to their face. I think that's true for everybody just because we're all sinful. We're all, uh, we all inhabit this body of death that is still fighting sin. Um, I think that the claim here for us, if the gospel grants us peace, if we understand what we talked about earlier, where Jesus Christ came and, and despite the fact that we were enemies with God, he made a way for us to be called friends of God. And peacemaking isn't just not deciding to say something. Peacemaking is this gospel-focused, gospel-proclaiming, eternity-oriented posture. If you understand your position before Christ, completely opposed to God with His wrath set against you, and you understand your position now in Christ, 
as those who understand that you're completely now out of that, and that God has called you His friend, then there's no way for us to ever fall into this category where we are speaking evil against a brother, like James writes in verse 11. That kind of brings us then into the second statement here, that the gospel frees from comparison. The gospel frees from comparison. Again, culturally, we see others, uh, and either we hold them to our arbitrary standard, or we hold ourselves to what we consider to be their standard. We do this regularly. But again, the gospel firmly demonstrates that there are two kinds of people, those who are in Christ and those who are not. Those who are in Christ and those who are not. Either your identity in this world is in this world, is in the temporary, or your identity is heaven and the eternal in Christ. If, if the latter is true, then you're free from comparisons. You're freed. All of those comparisons, they go away. Because again, you had nothing and you were given everything. Because you are an enemy of God and now you are his friend. Because you are a son of Satan and now you are a son of God. Because you are a citizen of the domain of darkness but now you're a citizen of the kingdom of God's beloved son. Nothing this world can offer you can change that blood bought promise. Nothing can change in this world that freely given identity. There's legitimately nothing. And so the call is clear coming out of this. If the gospel frees us from comparisons, church, then no more comparisons. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Now, this person does that and this, and I don't. That, that, that person doesn't do anything or whatever it is. I think this is a reason why a lot of what we, we want to do together as a body sometimes doesn't, doesn't exactly take shape, right? Um, what do I mean by that? I mean that oftentimes we neglect to be together as the body of Christ outside of the Sunday morning context because of comparisons. Because we, because we ask questions, what will people think of me? Or maybe I'm not spiritual enough. Maybe I don't really fully understand what's going on. Maybe, my, maybe people are going to think that I'm a hypocrite. And all those fears and comparisons, and they're, they're, they're bound up in this idea, right? They're bound up in this culturally mandated idea that tells us that hold yourself to someone else and hold yourself to a standard that's not God's. Look at someone. Compare yourself to them. Compare what you drive. Compare what they wear, compare how their kids behave. The reason that we want to be together in communities continually confess our need to know God more and to acknowledge that none of us have it down and none of us have a corner on this market that God uses others to help us know Him more. So let's know God together. That's the call here, right? Let's know God together. If we humble ourselves, if we move past these comparisons, if we get to a place here where we can say that, yeah, you know what? Those comparisons are secondary. We understand that our identity is first and found in Christ. 
That should humble us to the point where this fighting, this quarreling, these, these arguments, these, these covetous, this covetousness, this um, comparison-driven posture is set aside in a secondary. We've been granted a relationship in Jesus Christ with a, an eternal God. An infinite God. We are finite. We can do nothing but scratch the surface of who He is, and yet we will move from this world one day, and in 10,000 years in eternity, we will not have scratched the surface. And in one million years, as finite creatures, we will not have scratched the surface. And in one billion years, we will not have scratched the surface. We're all just a bunch of surface scratchers. Let's scratch the surface together. Let's do it together. And finally, this morning, this, this, last, uh, this last statement for us, the gospel, it humbles us. So we have the gospel uh, grants us peace. The gospel, um, the, the gospel frees us from comparison. The gospel humbles us. We walk in humility as those who are in Christ. The God-man Jesus Christ humbled himself in the way that you or I cannot even begin to fathom. The agency of the Word of God, the, the agency of the Word of God spoke to create all things, took on human flesh and dwelled among us. Which one of you this morning can bring something into existence out of nothing? No, none of us. Which one of us can do something like that? I'll leave you with Philippians 2, 3 through 9, which you read earlier. This is an example of the reason why we can sow peace, that we can set aside our passions, that the reason that we can humble ourselves. Not the reason why <laughs> not the reason why we like to now we understand entirely. But the reason why, because before Jesus and his work on the cross, we were completely incapable of this humility. The gospel humbles us for two reasons. One, because it exemplified by Christ who who was humble. Exemplified by Christ who was humble, but two, even more importantly than that, it is only possible because Christ humbled himself and transformed us, placed a new heart inside us, and prepared us for good works that he beforehand had prepared that we might walk in them. So here it is again, Philippians 2, verses 3 through 9. This is where we're in this morning. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Let's pray.